You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Today's episode is brought to you by Codify. Visit them on the web at www.codify.com. Hello and welcome to the Architect Podcast, episode 54. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk to Dr. Doug Scott about experimental archaeology and doing live fire exercises with historic weaponry. Let's get to it. All right, so welcome to the show, everyone. I don't have a co-host today. Um, everybody, uh, everybody either wasn't available or Skype simply would not allow it. So um, sometimes we have Skype issues like that, but that's okay. Um, but I have Dr. Douglas Scott on, and we talked a couple weeks ago about some of the things he's doing. But first, um, welcome, Doug, to the show. Well, thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you. Awesome. And we're going to talk about this uh, – uh, some experimental archaeology you've been doing, and in, in our in our call that we had a couple weeks ago to just kind of talk about this, we had uh, discussed basically experimental archaeology with historic archaeology, which you don't often hear about, quite frankly, um, at least not in my circles. You always hear about prehistoric experimental archaeology. But um, before we get into that, why don't we set the baseline, and why don't you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself and what your background is? Essentially, I'm a, a retired archaeologist, although I haven't retired from the profession. I just retired from my uh, regular job. And for over 30 years, I was a public servant archaeologist with the Department of Interior, uh, both the Bureau of Land Management and the National Park Service. Um, I think most people are aware of some of the things I, I might have done if they don't know who I am. And that's... Um, directing the archaeology of the Little Bighorn Battlefield and a number of other uh, conflict studies around the world, um, dealing with um, American Indian Wars, Revolutionary War, and the Civil War, as well as uh, being involved in forensic archaeology, uh, using some of those same techniques we developed in conflict studies to deal with uh, human rights uh, uh, kind of uh, mass grave studies on people who were killed um, in uh, in warfare, allegedly warfare, but oftentimes uh, illegal executions in, uh, in various countries. And uh, I've worked in Croatia and Bosnia and Cyprus, as, as well as Rwanda, and, uh, and even worked on a, a dog welfare case in uh, Canada a few years back. Yeah, that's one of the things we talked about um, in our in our call before was conflict archaeology, and I think that's going to be a whole separate episode at some point in the future. <laughs> well, it, uh, it's a big field these days, yes. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Okay, well, let's talk about uh, some of the experiments you've been working on, particularly the uh, live fire experiment. Why don't you tell people what does that mean for people that don't really know what, what we're even talking about? What is a live fire exercise? <laughs> a live fire experiment or a live fire archaeology experiment um, – is, is simply using uh, firearms in this particular case to uh, and literally firing them with uh, full charges and bullets uh, into um, various media in order to find out what those bullets do and see how that uh, relates to what we find and an actual uh, conflict or hunting sites or, or other places that firearms were used. And as, as you well know, Chris, experimental archaeology has em emerged in recent years as a very rigorous approach to the study of material uh, culture and reflections of human behavior. And that's what it's all about. It's understanding uh, how our artifactual material reflects human behavior and human decision making. 
this, you know, it's an increasingly refined field that lets archaeologists develop insights and methods for making behavioral interpretations uh, of the archaeological record. And in our case, studying firearms, uh, archaeologists need to design and carry out appropriate experiments and draw on technical uh, methods developed by uh, forensic firearm examiners, engineers, and, and physicists, for that matter. And uh, an example being the recent uh, battlefield archaeology investigations, uh, they we that's given us new impetus to study rifling characteristics of historic rifled weapons and the external ballistic capability of those firearms, and which translates to the combat efficiency of those arms, and in turn, literally translates into the archeological record and what we recover. So it's a reverse engineering uh, approach to things. Um, firearms have always been, at least in you know, since the colonization of the new world, a significant vector, if you will, of political, ecological, and cultural change. Um, guns entered the new world, even though we see them as as um, old matchlocks or whatever uh, folks might want to see them as. Arquebus uh, is rather a crude technology, but they are, for their uh, age and date, a re very refined technology. And that technology, that ability to have uh, propel a bullet at long distances, as opposed to a bow and arrow or a lance or uh, a spear, uh, was a causal factor in our, our post-Columbian uh, and post-contact period developments in the, in the new world. Uh, and it may be hunting, uh, it may be combat, but there, it deeply affected um, the manner in which colonization occurred and also generally the ecology of the new world. You know, back to the, to the, the firearms that you're that you're using are, are these reproductions or are they actual historic artifacts? In the in the recent live fire experiment that we did, we uh, were trying to evaluate the external ballistic performance of a series of colonial firearms, Revolutionary War in mm -hmm. all, all effect. Uh, we did use reproductions. These reproductions are um, handmade by skilled gunsmiths who literally replicated certain uh, specific firearms, um, not just a generic model. These are not factory-made uh, weapons. These are, are gunsmiths making them, and they, they come as close to looking like and firing like uh, an original um, 18th century firearm as we can possibly get. Nice, nice. And what kind of, I mean, what kind of firearms are we talking about here? Are these like, uh, did they, I, I don't honestly know a whole lot about it, and I'm not sure some people in the audience might either. Are these like a handgun type of thing or more of a rifle type of thing or what? Well, the, the we fired seven different types of weapons, um, and these were all flintlocks, and they're all shoulder-fired weapons, so we would call them um, muskets or fowlers. Um and, and they commonly represent guns that were used during the French and Indian Wars, as well as the Revolutionary War, and, and for all practical purposes, a little before and a little after that. So it's, you know, they're from mid-18th century to early 19th century kinds of weapons. They're, they're all custom-made replicas. Um, one we had was a colonial fowler, which could be used as a, um, well, a colonial farmer or uh, could use it as a, uh, a shotgun for taking down birds or small game or put a ball in it 
and round ball and of the of boar size, and it would uh, take down larger game or people. And um, these fowlers um, represent what the colonial militias were using and the Minuteman companies, um, such as on eight, April 19, 1775. We also employed two British long land pattern brown besses. Uh, one is a 1742 pattern, the other 1756, both in, in 76 caliber, so slightly over three quarters of an inch in diameter bullet. And they represent the standard British firearms used during in uh, in colonial America, particularly in the French and Indian Wars and the American Revolution. Uh, another common British gun of the era, which we we also um, had a replica of, was an artillery carbine. Um, and it was literally designed for artillerymen to have, but it, uh, slight variations of it uh, also represent the British officer's fusil or musket and the British sergeant's carbine. Uh, we think of a carbine today as a very short-barreled weapon. These are factually fairly long, and, and a lot of people would, would see them uh, if they were in a display case someplace as sort of a short short musket. Uh, they're, they're essentially a, a, a .65 caliber, six, uh, you know, 65 hundredths of an inch in diameter bore. And they were they were carried by, um, uh, in slight variations in uh, external furniture of as British sergeants or officers or artillerists, um, there was a convenient one to use for us as um, it was readily available. Two others were um, French guns, the 1728-41, and these designations are very particularistic, but it means it's a 1728 uh, production model modified to a 1741 pattern and a 1763 pattern modified to a 1766. So these are, again, French and Indian Wars um, and, um, and American Revolution era weapons that were um, French patterns, that they were imported into the colonies, um, the American colonies, um, uh, for use in um, uh, both on, on, on both sides of the conflicts, both French and Indian or and the and the revolution, but mainly by the Americans. The seventh gun we had um, is a, um, a a Hessian Potsdam musket model 1740 as in 73 caliber. And I should mention the French and Indian. Well, the French guns are uh, 68 caliber to 69 caliber. They vary slightly. So, and then the Potsdam musket 1740, which would be the type carried by the uh, Haitian units recruited by the British, sometimes called mercenaries, uh, is, a, is a 73 caliber. So we had a f just literally full range of the larger caliber weapons used by the American colonists uh, during the revolution and the British um, in, in, the, in the process of fighting one another during the revolution. Nice. All right. So how did you set up the experiment? What were the mechanics of it? Well, mechanically, you know, it's very simple. Uh, we have gunpowder. We have lead bullets. Uh, we, we did purchase um, uh, modern, modern gunpowder, modern black powder uh, made by a, a, a Swiss company. They've been making gunpowder um, in, in that area of Switzerland for 350 years, so I wow. think they know what to do. <laughs> That was just one way to control all one variable, uh, which is a quality gunpowder. We can't replicate uh, 19, 18th or 19th century gunpowders very well. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we set up a, um, a firing range, a hundred yards long, um, which uh, had a, a sand berm in front of it and target frame. And then behind it uh, was a log palisade made of hard, of hard maple, live oak, and uh, loblolly pine. Um, kind of simulate a, um, a fortification or a blockhouse that might have been built during French and Indian Wars or even the Revolutionary War in some cases. So uh, we want to know what bullets, if they pass through the berm or over the berm and they hit uh, the logs, what, what would happen? Would they penetrate? Would they bounce off? What uh, Would they embed? Whatever they do. So that, that was part of it. Uh, the lead bullets were actually quite critical, so we ordered them um, from a company that uh, hand cast them with the same kind of lead. And we actually did a portable X-ray fluorescence analysis on the lead to know what the trace elements are, so we can compare them to historic period um, bullets that have been found. And these are all spherical round balls. Uh, we weren't using any conical um, uh, modern type modern bullets. It was all the the round ball, and uh, and and that was that's the essence of it, except for the really cool part. Uh, we set up uh, thanks to a, a, a aimed research company, uh, a phantom high speed camera, which allowed us to do about six thousand frames per second of, of shooting, so we could actually see what these bullets were doing as they flew through the air or hit the media. Well, that also allowed us to get the chronograph. So I got the, the velocity of the bullet. Gotcha. And then we, then we also fired into a ballistic media. It's called clear ballistics, and it's a clear block of gelatin that does the same density as human tissue. And um, it allows when the bullet goes in, you can actually see the cavitation occurring, hmm. assuming it, it would not hit bone or something like that. And so you see the process of this cavitation and then the, the bullet either stopping or embedding in it. And then it allows us to kind of, um, uh, and we can ascertain the bullet velocity entering. And if it leaves the media and heads on down range, we can get the uh, exit velocity so we can tell how much energy is lost in the process. And, and the methods we follow are very similar to what uh, modern firearms examiners do and having to do shooting instant reconstruction to figure out what, what a bullet does or does not do in a, in an actual shooting incident. Yeah, I feel like anybody that's seen uh, Mythbusters over the last 15 years know, knows what that like ballistic gel stuff looks like. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Um, yeah. It's exact, It's the same kind of thing. We may have used a different brand than they use, but yeah. Uh, yeah. that doesn't matter. It's, the, it's a standard that's used throughout the world, that, mm -hmm. uh, and in our case matches a FBI standard for penetration and, and density and so forth. Gotcha. You mentioned that the the firing range was a hundred yards long. Did you fire every weapon at a hundred yards, or was that just the maximum length you had? Because that seems like a long ways for revolutionary time period to me. Well, uh, yes, it it does for I think a lot of people. But those bullets do go that far and further. When you think of a revolutionary war battle, um, most people did not fire their weapons under one or at 100 yards or greater, it would be desperate to do that because the accuracy of the weapons was not that great. Although we did find an exception to that. And so we, we just set it up as it was just a standard. And then um, 
but uh, we did also at the ballistic gelatin, we fired that at, at or shot at it from a 25 yard range mm-hmm. to be more typical of the, you know, the, the last discharge of a, an attack line before they did a bayonet charge. So 25 to 35 yards was pretty common. Um, and, and that just, it just gave us some inf- just basic information. Mm-hmm. And then during the Revolutionary War, the, the basic tactics were, were volley fire, was not truly aimed fire like we do today. Gotcha. Uh, in fact, the, the, when a uh, British command was given to uh, stand on a line roughly almost shoulder to shoulder with uh, one or two ranks of men behind you within 18 inches to 36 inches, then the, 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 the command was ready present fire. There was no term aim used in the, in the British army or the American colonials in, in the 18th century. It was, you, you just leveled your gun and shot because there are no, <laughs> there, except for riflemen. And we were not firing rifled weapons at this particular experiment. All right. Well, I want to ask you about any uh, surprises that you had, but with just a minute left in the segment, I think we'll we'll finish the segment here and just take a little bit extra time on the next segment. So we will be back in uh, about 30 seconds. Uh, but first, here's a message from Codify, one of our sponsors for today's episode. Back in a second. Today's episode is sponsored by Codify. Check them out on the web at www.codify.com. That's www.codify.com. Now back to the show. All right. So We've talked about how you set up the experiment, what you were testing, and things like that. So what were some of the results and possibly some of the um, surprises that came from this experiment? The, the whole process of doing this was fascinating. Um, I, I grew up firing uh, modern firearms as well as, as uh, doing some experimenting and uh, con- even limited, very simple competition with, uh, with black powder guns as a as a youngster and young adult. So I was familiar with this stuff. And I, what, we, what came out of it is that certain things were expected. When, when we fired these British muskets, the two different ver- versions of them, well, even the three versions, and counting the, uh, the uh, carbine or fusel, mm-hmm. uh, they, they fired just like would be normal. Uh, about every 20 shots, we had to replace a flint. That's not a surprise. Um, they wear out. Um, once in a while, we had what's called a hang fire or a misfire, where the the either the the powder in the pan didn't go off, the flint didn't strike the uh, steel or frizzing hard enough. That actually does did happen in the past. It happened to us. Um, we had to readjust the um, you know the term flash in the pan is when you uh, this Flint hits the steel, sets the charge off in the pan, but doesn't transmit into the bore and, and send the bullet down the line. But uh, we had those kind of things happen. We took appropriate safety precautions for those kind of situations. But those were real, real live, real world situations. And we, we observed those and, and made note of those. Firing the bullets on those, those British weapons, it was pretty interesting um, in one sense, is that uh, uh, we, although we were not shooting for accuracy, the the result was that we we found the bullets were literally all over the map. Um, they, they would generally hit in the area of the target, but were not uh, not 
not really good for accuracy. But then again, the British were trying for volley fire, massed amounts of lead flying through the air. And so the guns were, were not, uh, not particularly accurate. And the farther out the range, the, the less accuracy, which is no surprise. Uh, the interesting thing is those 73 to 75 caliber, or so three quarter inch diameter ball, uh, bores in the guns used a .69 uh, ball in them, and that was pretty typical because there were variations in bore size, and so they kept the ball smaller, allowing for windage capability of loading. As guns got dirty, they fouled. So that res that's not unexpected results from the firing. So that was pretty interesting. They also fired at a lower velocity than um, than I had kind of anticipated. They were we could get reach around a thousand feet per second near speed of sound but not quite in most cases. The French guns were actually, um, we allowed for windage in those two. That's what the difference in the bore size and the bullet size is called. Um, that worked out real well. And um, they fired more accurately um, and had higher velocities. But the really surprising gun was the uh, 58 caliber Thomas Earl Fowler was a copy of the Thomas Earl gun, which was actually Earl was a gunmaker who um, actually made weapons for George Washington and other other folks. But uh, typical of a foul or a long, a long, small caliber gun, small in a relative sense, it was 58 caliber. Whether we load with it with a cartridge with a, using a 0.52 ball or a full bore size ball uh, without cartridge, without paper as a wadding uh, at 5.8. We were exceeding uh, 1,100 feet and up to almost 1,500 feet per second in firing, which is huge. I mean, that's supersonic. And, and, and the rain and the accuracy was incredible, even though, again, I want to emphasize, we did not shoot for accuracy, but almost everybody who fired that gun um, could, could put a, a bullet on a piece of paper, even it may not be in the, in the formal black of the target, it was on the paper. So I decided I wanted to be a colonial militiaman, <laughs> and I wanted to be one of the Minutemen. Uh, hiding in the woods because I think I could have done a better job, uh, but uh, that was that was a remarkable find. One of the things we did when we fired into the ballistic gelatin, uh, we fired the the Fowler and the French gun and the British gun, and the um, all uh, at 25 yards with their full charge, and we can go into the black powder charges. We varied them according to the gun and the type of of, of charge that historically would have been used, the amount of gunpowder behind the bullet. But the um, all of them at 25 yards, we put two blocks of ballistic gelatin to uh, end on end. So we had, it was a six by six inch di uh, face that we shot at. And, and we put two of them in, so we had 32 inches, 16 inches each. Um, so we had 32 inches of ballistic gelatin, figuring, well, the bullets will capture them as they, as they go in, because that's a, you know, these things are not that high velocity, relatively speaking to modern stuff. Um, we actually put a simulated uh, uniform cloth on the, on the front. It's actually a, a broad cloth it's to simulate the uh, coat that the men would wear lined with serge with a waistcoat underneath, which is also broadcloth lined with serge, and then a linen shirt. So we had a thickness of cloth that these bullets would have to go through. 
And whether it was the Fowler, the French guns, or the British guns, when we fired them at 25 yards, they would in completely penetrate and exit 32 inches of gelatin, mm -hmm. which means you could take two, two people out if you were shooting at a rank of soldiers. Wow. And, and the velocity was actually enough that when, that when it went into the gelatin and, and lost energy, of course, going through that, um, and then and exited, it still had enough power to, to go downrange. One of the things that we did was after, regardless of shooting at 100 yards or 25 yards at gelatin or what our targets, we fired the shot, stopped, and then metal detected to recover that bullet mm -hmm. uh, in, in whatever it, place it might be. Of all, all the bullets that we fired at 25 yards, exclusive of the ones that were captured in the gelatin, and we did, I'll come to that in a minute, mm -hmm. all went out to 100 yards and beyond, and we were recovering them. And they might have hit the palisade and embedded or bounced off of it or whatever. So we were collecting in a lot of information on uh, ex, you know, what a bullet does when it reaches its terminal velocity or, or still has velocity and what, what it strikes. So we have records not only of which gun was fired and how much gunpowder in it and the velocity of that weapon, but then we recovered the bullet. Uh, and about 85% uh, recovery rate. So we, you know, missed a few. That's not surprising. Mm -hmm. um, but the, uh, in order to capture the bullet and see what happened in the ballistic gelatin, we had to what we call downcharge them. So we took the Colonial Fowler at 85 grains of gunpowder, downsized, downloaded it to 75 grains, fired it, and we were able to capture the bullet. Um, but what was surprising there is the bullet goes through, still went through 16 inches of gelatin and then almost another um, uh, 14 inches of, of gelatin and, and before we captured it. And, and it, you know, when, the, when any bullet enters a, a tissue, there is a cavitation and a loss of kinetic energy as it's transferred from the bullet to the, uh, to the tissue. And they're literally, you can see in the in the high speed footage shock waves of, of of these things going through there. So we learned a lot about potential understanding of wounds and mm -hmm. wounding abilities, capacity of these of these bullets, um, and but also recovering them from the gelatin it gave us an idea of, of what kind of deformation occurred in just going through tissue, as opposed to hitting you know, a log palisade or a, a sand berm or something. Yeah. Did you, or do you plan to in the future, um, plan to add to those experiments with the, with the gelatin, like simulate clothing? Because I know the clothing back then would it could have been, I mean, if it were wintertime, it could have been, you know, miles of wool clothing <laughs> that that bullet yeah. had to go through first. So, yeah, which would probably slow it down quite a bit. Right. Well, the, the, the cloth that we put on uh, did simulate just a standard, Uniform, uh, mm -hmm. British, with an over with their top coat, not not an overcoat, but at their standard coat, or mm -hmm. um, and then the the waistcoat underneath of the vest, and then a shirt. So uh, that would be for most of the year. Yeah, a heavy top coat over uh, or overcoat over the top of that would have been interesting to do, and we'd like to do more of that. Long term, our goals are to um, do some of this live fire experimentation. Uh, we'd like to go back to Spanish colonial weapons 
and work our and even French colonial the arquebus and the wheel locks and and schnappoons and things like that and work our way through right on up to um, civil war and then later the the guns that won the west sort of uh, things mm-hmm. and and shoot them and and just look at all look at all this data and a lot a big database in comparison um, sort of changes time the main the main thing we're looking at is is the function of black powder weapons Modern smokeless powder weapons are well documented in the firearms literature and modern hunting literature, so those are not an issue. But it's these earlier black powder guns with very controlled experiments um, are really, really critical understanding what we find in the archaeological uh, sites and particularly uh, battlefields. And, And in particular, what we did with these colonial weapons in the live fire relates specifically back to um, work that had been done at Parker's Revenge, which is a component of the uh, Minuteman National Historical Park, the April 19, 1775, beginning of the American Revolution, where we found colonial uh, Fowler bullets uh, in uh, what we believe to be a British line and correspondingly a group of uh, British-sized or caliber balls uh, found where we think the uh, militiamen or Minutemen were were hidden in the in a woodlot. Uh, so on the, essentially, the uh, march back to Boston by the British regulars uh, and the uh, uh, sniping and and small small unit attacks that occurred to really uh, decimate the the British uh, regulars as they marched back to 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 Boston. So this information directly relates to how interpretations of, um, are occurring with that kind of archaeological information. Okay. Now, I'm curious too as to some some more of the setup of your experiment because you mentioned having to uh, you know when you fire a weapon having a metal detect to find the bullet um, you know if it didn't embed itself in something or whatever. So. This seems like it would have been a really kind of slow experiment to conduct because you'd, you'd want each bullet from the last one that was fired and not to fire like 10 or 15 and then go find them all because you need to correlate that with the with the firing, I would assume. So is that kind of how you guys did it or did you have another process for that? No, you, you described it just right on. We uh, What we did was measure and weigh the bullets before they were fired and then fire them, fire the gun. Go out and look for that particular bullet from that five, that shot. So we only, you know, from each shot. So it was a very slow process. It took us three days to uh, accumulate data on about seventy-five shots um, wow. from different guns. It was worth every every bit of time. Um, not only was it just fun to shoot the guns and and experience what a, um, a colonial militiaman or a British regular might have, uh, have felt in using these, but we were also, um, you know, able to recover those bullets and have, have, you know, knowing that it was fired at 785 feet per second, it went through a target frame, actually the pine t- frame of a target, went through that and struck the berm, and then we recovered it, and so, and then we could look at the deformation on that. One of the things that we, uh, um, a number of people have um calculated or uh, believe that, and, uh, and I'm one of them along with Dan Sivilich, that we can figure out the, you know, whether it's a high, medium, or low velocity impact 
because of the, the type of deformation on a bullet, whether it's flattened, whether it's partially flattened, or it's just almost un, um, undamaged when it hits something because it's the, it's the amount of velocity and the media which it strikes. And, but with, uh, and Dan Sivilich has done a superb book on um, musket balls, uh, from, particularly from the revolution, but just uh, understanding what happens to musket balls and how you can and look at them archaeologically. But with the data we had, we were able to create a, a round ball deformation index that very much mirrors, uh, it turns out, from you know trying to take it from an objective point of view, um, what mirrors what we had been saying, but we can now give some idea of approximate velocity that um, a bullet was going when it deforms as, you know, at, well, you know I, we, I think we used a numbering system, one through, one through three, um, is little or none to moderate to significant. And, uh, and it seems to be holding. And uh, we also did a blind study of this. And, and Dan Silich, who knew we were doing the shooting, I sent him the uh, number of the bullets that we have very, very good data on and asked him, um, from your archaeological experience, what do you think this means? And he was able to identify the, the bullet to caliber. And he's got a formula for doing this, even though it's deformed um, about 95% of the time, which is excellent. Um, he had, he also made um, determinations of what he believed to be um, the, the deformation, which was consistent with what we found. And this, um, just for interest, uh, the, his um, he's this formula he uses on defer, deformed bu bullets. Uh, you know, you can't get a diameter on them, so he weighs them, runs them through this formula. And since we knew the actual diameter of our bullet and we also measured it after it was fired and weighed it and everything so we know how much lead was lost, um, we ran a statistical correlation uh, against his formula with, with our stuff and it came out at 99.9, uh, .9, so it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Dan, did a, Dan did a superb job developing this formula. That's a result you can live with, yeah. And our, our experiments were not just to see what these guns did, but to allow us to take this information, compare it back to archaeological uh, assumptions, and see how valid we have been. So it's a it's a it's a validation process that we were doing here too. And I don't think that's talked about enough. You you hear a lot of conversations about about doing the experiment and experimental archaeology, like oh we did this, we replicated this, you know these were our our things, and this is what our results were, but. I think doing the the reverse kind of blind study on that and then bringing in, for any type of experimental archaeology, bringing in somebody else that wasn't involved in the experiment and having them analyze what you're, the artificial archaeological record you just created and have them analyze that from an archaeological standpoint and see if, hey, is, is the analysis that we're employing on actual archaeological sites actually giving us the right results? <laughs> because... You know, by by creating the the experiment, you've created the initial conditions, and we don't know that for most archaeological sites. We're just assuming. Yes, yes, I, I'm in complete agreement with you, and that's why I I find this experimental archaeological approach to be so valuable, uh, mm -hmm. and and precisely for the reason when you um, you know you do something and it turns out it looks like what the archaeological record has, we feel like we've achieved something. But if we don't do some of these blind studies and have somebody else 
look at them um, and say, oh, yeah, well, it makes sense. Or what did, did you consider that? Or did you think of this? You know, look at those other parameters. Sometimes, you know, as researchers, we don't get it all. Sometimes can't do it all either. Uh, time and money always are a factor. But uh, we were this particular set of experiments with these um, colonial weapons has um, opened up our eyes on some areas and um, and others were just verified what we I uh, think we're thinking yeah. but validation studies uh, which are done in a lot of the forensic field just as a cross check uh, and that's part of what my background is it allows us to be more you know to say we have rigorously tested something and we show that this is a valid way to do things and and we have to keep doing that because things, uh, bits and things change. Analytical techniques change. Statistical methods of evaluation change. So if we don't keep experimenting or reusing the data and comparing it and contrasting it and revalidating it from time to time, I think we're making a mistake. Um, we archaeologists tend to, uh, I think, um, perceive that we understand the past, past, from the artifacts and the and the context, and I believe that very strongly is absolutely accurate. But we need to test ourselves and keep testing ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Um, so, in the last minute or two here, what uh, where are you guys going from here? Do you have any more similar experiments planned? Well, we're working on that right now. Um, several ideas. Um, Probably the next one would be and to move into Civil War weapons. Is there plenty of high-quality reproductions or even some very good preserved originals that we might be able to fire? It just It's getting everybody together and having the time and the resources mm-hmm. to, to do this. But, yeah, we're, we're all very, very interested in it. And um, our, our report is available in a couple of different places online now. And so we want feedback from others. Um, so we'd like to have people take a look at it and mm-hmm. see what they think of it and give us give us their comments. Yeah, and I can get those links from you, Doug, and we'll put those in the show notes. So go check out uh, arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeotech forward slash 54 for the episode number. And you should see a link to the uh, to the report there right in the show notes. So, well... I'd like to thank you, Doug, for coming on, and uh, I hope we can report back on some some future experiments you guys do, or even some some more results from these experiments, and 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 let people know how it's going. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure to be with you on the show. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at arcpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. 
Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.